You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. Okay, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to have Michael or Mike McDermott. Uh, he's the co-founder and CEO of FreshBooks, and they've been around for quite a while. Um, I was actually just telling Mike we were supposed to have a conversation seven years ago to talk about just nerd out on SaaS, but FreshBooks, they are the number one cloud accounting software for self-employed professionals and small businesses, and over 10 million people, I think probably even bigger than that now, have used FreshBooks. So Mike, first and foremost, welcome to the show and tell us a little bit about kind of who you are and what you do. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, co-founder and CEO. Story goes, I accidentally saved over an invoice and decided there had to be a better way, so I built it. That's where I come from. We had some, uh, you know, sort of humble beginnings. Got started, spent three and a half years in my parents' basement. You know, since then, over 20 million people uh, actually have used the service. We're number two in America for small business accounting software and number one for self-employed folks and their teams, as we like to say. Um, it's yeah, ridiculously easy to use invoicing and accounting software, you know, available on your mobile phone, all that good stuff. Uh, please give us a try if that's what you need. <laughs> Forgive cool. the intermercial. <laughs> I, I can, that's a plus one from my side. I've used FreshBooks many, many times. You're also published author too. Is that something worth talking about? Breaking the time barrier. Yeah. You know, thank you for mentioning it. True story. I wrote a book. So we do these things where we will take our customers out to dinner. Like I'll go to a conference and I'll host a customer dinner. And anyone at FreshBooks, when they're traveling, can host a customer dinner. So people have done them in like Argentina and uh, Singapore and all this this good stuff. Uh, anyhow, so I host these dinners where we just invite people to come out. And I would always hear the same problems come up. And, and one of them for our customers, because we serve people who uh, really, a lot of them are sort of project-based work where they're quoting and doing proposals and all the stuff. We're just around how to price for their work and you know how to move from sort of brochure where, hey, it's $250 for me to build you a website to this more consultative approach to selling, which is like, what problem are you trying to solve and how much is it worth? And so I wrote a little book. It takes uh, you know about an hour to read. It's been downloaded over a quarter million times. We made it available for free. And it's it's really around how do you price your services and be more strategic around that. Interesting. Okay. And the people can just go to Amazon for that? Not even Amazon. Like just search the internet, breaking the time PDF. barrier. Yeah, it's we get a PDF version, and you can sort of read it online. And it's just a really simple guide. It's you know disclaimer alert. It's written like a fable. You know, hopefully you won't be too upset for me for doing that for an hour's time. But I found it a really useful mechanism. The intent of the book is to help you with a mindset shift. Because that is mostly what people uh, are held back by in these scenarios. I love that. That's so smart. We should maybe talk about writing fables because I, I really enjoy Patrick Lencioni's books. And also um, there's this book I'm reading right now called The Phoenix Project. And that's a fable too, which is about DevOps. But look, FreshBooks, how do you guys make money? How do you guys typically charge? So our business is a subscription you know, SaaS business. So people pay us a monthly fee. Sometimes they pay for it monthly or, or choose to get a bit of a discount and pay annually. We also have some other lines of business we attach to that. One of them being, you know, we help people collect billions of dollars every year electronically. And so we're, we're sort of in the payments business as well. Got it. Okay, great. And so what kind of numbers can you share around the business? Employee size, revenues, growth rates, anything like that? Yeah, we've sort of almost, I don't want to say famously, because that would be self-aggrandizing in the wrong way, but we basically don't disclose. We don't do forward-looking statements. You know, we don't do uh, financials, but you know, here's what we do disclose. So over 20 million people use the service since we started. We're over 300 employees, help people collect billions of dollars every year. 
Um, you know, I think you can think of us as a late stage, you know, venture backed organization that is uh, scaling nicely. Got it. And you guys didn't raise money until I think most people would consider it fairly later, right? Yeah, that's right. We had people banging down our door for probably a decade before we said, now the time is right. And that was, uh, I think, a very good decision in hindsight. Yeah. And I think because a lot of people go through, I mean, because of all the stuff you see on TechCrunch and, you know, all the VCs, the popular people, they want to put money into things that are growing, right? But then there are the startup founders out there that are, you know, fully content with with waiting it out. And so maybe, I guess, could you walk us through your mindset on why you decided to wait and why um, why that's probably beneficial for a lot of people? Yeah. So a couple thoughts here. If you think about the time we started the business, which is over 15 years ago, it was a different time on the internet. Okay. Basically all the blog posts that help people get smart today were not yet written, nor were they available. And so there was basically, when you thought about like the venture community, there was a huge information arbitrage between VCs and, and entrepreneurs. The internet's come and sort of closed that up. But I was very, and I would say painfully aware of that information arbitrage and I'm like, hey, there's a whole bunch of things I don't know. And so I was in this learning process and, and what I wanted to do was, because I knew that I was gapped on an information standpoint at the very least, you know, like all that and many other vectors, but that was one as it pertained to outside investment. I just wanted to make sure, you know, I didn't show up one day to a board meeting and get told, oh, we're outsourcing customer service because we think that's the right thing to do. Everyone was doing that in 2005, Dell, everybody. And, you know, we're huge on customer service. And I was like, I just, I don't want to get to that place where I just don't feel like I have the ability to influence these kinds of decisions for the right reasons. And that's what it seemed like to me bringing on money was. So it was, it was actually like fear and uncertainty was a huge driver but then as I learned, you know, I went along and I was like, for me, it's like, well, how do you overcome that? It's really just an information gap. So you start to understand, well, what, what does a venture capitalist really want? People would say growth, they want to make money. But I think it's, you know, the, the calculus is, is a little more nuanced and you get under it and it's like, well, they're really looking for businesses that have de-risked the vectors on which a business is risky, right? So you want to make sure the product's good, you know, the team's good, the market's big enough to just name like basically three top things. And so as I started to understand that, what happened for us is eventually, hey, we had the, you know, a rapidly growing best product in category. There's no question about this market of people, A, working for themselves and starting their own businesses, not going away anytime soon. The last thing for me was actually our team. And, you know, it's a funny thing. Like, I really believed in our team. I had these great people around me. Many of them are off running some of the most successful companies in Toronto, where FreshBooks is based now. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. They kind of grew up with us. But at the time, not all of them had developed to the place where what I thought we needed for the business. And so then one day I hired my first, like, true executive. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what I need. And then in the next 12, 14 months, basically hired a whole team of them. And then once I did that, it was like, you know, the only thing holding us back now is capital. Right. And our business model, you know, sort of can consume a bunch of capital. And so, you know, that was 2014. We decided to bring on um, institutional capital for the first time. And we've done that, you know, frankly, a couple of times since. But that was the, the journey I went on. I, I just wanted to make sure, you know, I have a high responsibility. And yes, I didn't know. I also wanted to invest for them to be successful. So can I deliver a return? Do I understand how to do that? What's to be done? And, uh, you know, once I felt like that whole cocktail got squared, you know, then it was like, okay, let's do this. Mm, awesome. You mentioned executive hire. I guess, what was that first executive hire you made? And you can even talk about who it was. In our case, it was a CTO, this guy, uh, Warren Falero. 
And for me, what he brought is this combination of he, he was very much able to sort of keep up with me strategically and intellectually, and also just push me back and create space for the team. Manage me a little bit too, I think was <laughs> probably part of it. But like, you know, take, I know where you want to go. Thank you for sharing that with me. Let me help you implement. He's kind of like a master implementer. And so he just started taking chunks of the business and he worked well outside the bounds of technology, helping to basically take the business. We were like a hundred people um, to really kind of help mature the business in a good way. And it was a great partner to be across a bunch of vectors. I mean, that's got to be a role that's not too easy for you because you built the product, right? It was your baby. So to have like a CTO come, I'm just trying to think through like what's going on in your mind because, you know, for some people, it's, it's hard to also let go of control. So, yeah, well, my whole thing is I don't want to have a job. I think people see me as very controlling. But, you know, what I find is that I work with better and better people. They, they just bring me stuff that's better than I could come up with, which is awesome. And I don't say that to diminish the folks I was working with. I think we were all figuring it out together. I was just a little further ahead at that time. And then we started hiring people who were, you know, sort of well ahead of me, which was great. But that's when things got, you know, very exciting and I could see the path to scaling. Right. But, uh, you know, as it pertains to that feeling, you know, I can relate. And I will say it's also very dangerous to just like, oh, you know, let go of the wheel. So I was more on the product management, less the engineering side of the house. And so I, I did retain considerable influence over that. And all of product development went to Warren in this instance, but he was really good about knowing his whole thing and his whole mindset was like, how do we get the best out of Mike so we can go far? And uh, he was good at that, right? Because it's like, I got the vision in my head. I know the customer. Let's get those inputs and then let's let the teams execute and implement. Right. Okay. When you made this hire, you guys were a hundred people or so, right? So what was kind of the, the comp range for this, you know, at a hundred person, we're going to hire the CTO. Well, I mean, so first of all, it's a package of base bonus and equity. Here's what I would say. Let's go uh, have a different conversation for a second. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of disclosing people's <laughs> individual compensation at a given time. I, I may resort to a range at the end of this longer answer. But yes. what I will say is there is market data for these kinds of things. As a small company, it's hard to get at. And you know, whatever I paid is probably less relevant than what you may need to pay in your area, if that makes sense. And so then the challenge becomes, well, how the hell do I fill out that market data? And so I think then the question becomes, well, who do you know who can help you with that? And there's kind of two groups of people that I think can help, maybe three, which is, you know, hey, other company founders and CEOs, I think is a great place to go. And they'll often sort of share that stuff to help you because we're all trying to figure it out. Another one would be investors. And this is actually one of the best places to use investors from my point of view is they kind of know what market is because they're constantly hiring people into these roles at different stages. And then the third thing would be maybe an HR professional in some industry who's got that. So I would go and seek out that data to understand. But, you know, I'd say with like hundreds of thousands of dollars is the punchline, right? You know, it's hard to stomach when you're, you know, sitting in the basement days. I couldn't have got my head around that. But by the time I got to 100 people, it was right. more, more palatable. Well, maybe you could just say yes or no to this. Uh, range is probably 250 to 500 all in. I mean, to be honest, at that stage, you can probably do. I mean, well, here's the thing. I mean, the markets change so much from them. So, like, I don't even know. I don't even want to give you a number. Mm -hmm. Because if you're in San Francisco, the number is going to be really different than Oklahoma. If it's the year is 2020 versus 2010, you know, these are all very different considerations. Got it. Okay. So it's hard to say. I, I don't have my finger on the pulse for what is market for a hundred person company today. Right. And you mentioned earlier, so in terms of sourcing high level executive talent, I heard investors, other entrepreneur friends, anywhere else you go to find these type of people? 
Okay, so those weren't so much sourcing talent as the data for what is the right comp range. Yeah, I mean, those are probably all pretty good sources if you are looking for talent. Is that, you'd like to know, like, how do you think about it? Yeah, you know, what we've gone to, and this is an expensive equation too, but really, I think at that point, and certainly in that case, we used a headhunter, right? Like, I think, like, I would encourage you to use a firm, and you'll probably spend, like, geez, you can spend, you know, six figures on a recruit. But if you get the right person, and this is the, the thing, like, you're going to be so much better off. <laughs> it's it hard itself. to stomach some of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, you cannot do it without the right people. And there's a little word of Every problem is a people problem. Every solution is a people solution. And if you're you're struggling in one part of your business, it's giving you fits or what have you, it is probably, hey, I've got the wrong person in there now. Um, and I hate to make it that simple, but ultimately – what I've come to realize is, you know, I was afraid, like, how do I scale? How do I keep our culture going? How do I make sure the products are great? The answer is like people and the leaders around you. And there is kind of always some of the fact, you know, the fact that a Google exists with all its people and its complexity and its excellence means that there are people who can probably can scale well beyond what you're going to need to do, but they're out there and you got to go get them to help you on your journey. Love it. Okay. I, l- I love conversations like this. I'm going to go back in time to when you're in your parents' basement for three and a half years to have a little customer development and product market fit uh, conversation. So this is kind of similar to where, where, at least where my software is right now, where we've been working on it for two years with my co-founder. And I, I guess for you, when did you know it was time to, you know, come out of the basement three and a half years after? Like, how long did it take for you to even figure out product market fit, you think? Um, you know, there was just this moment and we've been working on it. And by the way, I think we achieved, you know, V1 of product market fit while we were in the basement because I was doing some research. We were always talking to our customers. Hey, you can phone us. You can email us. We want to talk to you as a, a bias in this organization. We want to talk to you. We want to serve and what happened on this instance was I was doing some research and, and kind of trying to understand, you know, for marketing purposes, how would you position our product? You know, what are the benefits in the customer's eyes? Forget whatever we think. And this person, you know, standing in my parents' furnace room on like a wireless phone, not like a cell phone, but like a wireless <laughs> landline. And I was talking to this individual and they just said, hey, listen your product has changed my behavior because it's so easy and fast to create an invoice. I don't put it off till the end of the month. And so I send the invoices right away. And the consequence of that is not only do I get paid faster because instead of waiting three weeks to send it, I'm sending it now. I also end up earning more because if I wait three weeks, I'll forget about work I did, or I will just slim down how much I charge because I feel bad about sending that bill. And, you know, I just, like the world got very quiet after that call. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, I think we're onto something here. <laughs> that was a beautiful moment. Awesome. So I hear a lot of, you know, talk to customers and I think a lot of, especially SaaS companies, they don't spend enough time talking to customers. So what is like the current process, if you guys have any, um, in terms of just kind of ongoing customer development? Oh yeah, we are, I mean, through a variety of ways, always doing uh, customer development. So I already mentioned one of them, which is these customer dinners, right? And we do telephone and email support in high volume, you know, at no cost. And so we love talking to our customers. And so customer service becomes an input. We also do generative research and product development where we will have a problem space or maybe trying to find a problem space or we will have high level defined one and we'll ask some vague open-ended questions and let customers kind of steer us to what they think they need then we do all kinds of user testing all that good stuff as well 
but also things like customer dinners are, you know, a place where I often get a lot of my best stuff because the things people say when they're having dinner are different than the things they say when they phone you up. Like when you're sitting face to face with somebody and, you know, they have a use of your product and you start to understand a broader context of their life, you get a better, you get different value vectors from their point of view emerge. Yeah. How about, I'm thinking about the early days. Now I want to go into maybe any bad days or struggles that you've gone through. So is there one particular big struggle that you faced while growing FreshBooks where maybe the company was about to die? <laughs> Great question. We, we had a moment, and this is one where actually the company was doing well, okay? But I thought it was going to die. <laughs> and it's because we have a really high standard and expectation a big part of the value probably working at FreshBooks is our culture and at about 80 people the wheels started falling off the bus it seemed to me right we did this anonymous survey on something and there was literally like pure vitriol in that like anonymous survey and I was like oh my god like I can't believe I'm in the same building as at least this person and and what have you and and you know basically what happens is scaling companies is hard 80 people is a classic break point and we needed to do a bunch of different things in how we ran the company. But I honestly had no clue what they were. <laughs> and I was like trying to lead and do my best at doing, but just completely ill-equipped. And, you know, that's a tough place to be because people are expecting you to lead and you're trying to lead and you are floundering. And, you know, it turned out, you know, this was not a long period, fortunately. And it just so happened I had some people who had worked in other companies and they're like, oh, like you just need to run Basically, like an all-hands meeting, quarterly, remind people what the vision and mission is, all that kind of stuff. And that resolved a bunch of things. But that was a very scary time for me. Not existential for the company, but it was existential for our culture. Got it. And so, I guess, how did you navigate through those waters? Yeah, well, so basically by collecting advisors. So I, I met somebody along the way who had been the CEO of a large, actually, in this case, it was the Canadian office of a large multinational and basically did some consulting. He came in for a little while and kind of like diagnosed this for me in an advisory capacity and kind of laid out for me, like, here are some of the pieces, which was super helpful. And then that was, you'll notice that was 80 people. And then, you know, at 100 people, I had people inside the building who could do that, which was great. Got it. Okay. So advisors first, maybe at 80 and then at least for you. And then, you know, as you get bigger, you have the people internally. Great. What do you think is working really well for you guys today in terms of customer acquisition? Just a couple more questions from my side. Yeah. My patented answer to this is I'd never tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a, that's a good answer. (laughs) That is fair because why would you get on a podcast where your competitors can listen to everything, right? Our competitors, there are people who wake up every day. I yeah. have a large competitor in Silicon Valley who they have a team of people who literally stalk me on the internet and watch everything I do and report it back. And so this will be their, they're listening to your show right now and making a note that he mentioned us again, but uh, it's a really weird world. Anyhow. So yes. So I don't like to back to no forward looking statements, no strategic, no roadmap reveal, no financials. It's because we're being watched like a hawk and copied like in record time. Once we do release things. Honestly, this is something I talk about on my other podcasts that it makes no sense to share income reports or get another podcast where you share, you know, how revenues are or how um, fast people are growing because the only advantage is if well, it's free information, your competitors can go get it anyway, but um, we still got a lot of value from this one. So Mike, what is one new tool that you've added maybe in the last 12 months or so that's added a lot of value to your life? So for me, an example would be I got my Peloton bike two months ago and I have been using it a lot. So it could be a physical thing or like an app. 
Yeah, I'll give you a couple quick hits. I've had this gap in my life for like sketching on stuff. And so I just went to the iPad Pro with the pencil, which is just, I grew up in a pre-laptop in the classroom world. <laughs> so I like to write stuff and sketch them out and draw concepts sometimes. I'm really pleased that, uh, you know, I kind of have that in my bag every day now. By the way, the, the iPad Pro, I've actually made videos on this, how it's game-changing for business. But what, maybe a bonus here, what apps are must-haves for you in um, for the iPad Pro? Uh, to be honest, there I would go. It's it's really nothing too special. You know, it's kind of it's productivity stuff. Uh, in fact, they could improve upon making it easier to take like a PDF and mark it up. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time in notes, uh, like either drawing concepts or you know, like basically kind of whiteboarding. Yeah, or just marking stuff up for review to discuss with people. Got it. You got to check out Notability. It is note taking on steroids. But very simple. Okay, it's only five dollars too. Um, I'm not affiliated. Anyway, what is one must-read book you'd recommend to everyone? Oh, it's so hard to answer that question. Is that a life book or a business book? I'm guessing it's more on the business side. No, honestly, it can be um, life too. Oh, interesting. Well, I'm going to give you a semi-patented answer. I'm sure many people on a show like this would have shared before. But a lot of times, entrepreneurs are trying to get started and wondering how to make that thing go uh, at the very earliest stages. And I really encourage people to check out E-Myth by Michael Gerber. It, it's kind of a classic. And what I like about it is it kind of, it, it sort of takes the founder and breaks it into three parts of a manager, a technician, and kind of an entrepreneur, a visionary. And you need all those pieces. And so if you bias, which everybody does, to one more than the other, then it starts to tell you who you need to surround yourself with. And then it also talks about like using almost like McDonald's as an example, like how to think about scaling things and making them repeatable, which, you know, at a startup stage, you actually are not doing a lot of. But I think depending on how seasoned you are as an operator and a lot of startup founders are just not that seasoned and operating, it gives you a bit of like a, a, you know, a mental model and roadmap for think about what you need to do in the future. Love it. Actually, I have a bonus question here, too. What is the new startup that you're working on? called Briza, B-R-I-Z-A dot I-O. It is actually developer-friendly infrastructure for the insurance industry. And that's the way I think about it. Awesome. Well, Mike, this has been fantastic. What's the best way for people to find you online? Probably the best way is at Mike McDermott on Twitter and or check us out at uh, freshbooks.com. All right, Mike, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, Eric. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.